Now please turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13, beginning in verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth, camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we who live in darkness in a rudderless and almost leaderless existence in this world, how thankful indeed that we know that we have a leader. And Lord, how we pray that these words would do us good, that as we turn to them, that you would enable us to mind them for all that they're worth, that we would see all the truth in them, and that we would see indeed also the applications to our lives today, that you would benefit and bless your people and lead them even now precisely as you did before, and even more so, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we are here in Exodus chapter 13, and we've already dealt with the bulk of the chapter, which had to do with not the Passover and the Exodus per se, but more the remembrance, more the memorial, more the ways in which God was going to put in place ways in which they would never ever forget how he had dealt with him. And now we come to this section in the end in which the narrative of the current events resumes. And in verse 17 it says, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. And the main point here is that the Lord led them. That's the main idea. That's the title of the sermon. The Lord led them. And we can be very, very thankful that he did. Of course, we know that had he simply uh, let them, uh, just sounded the the word, you can go now, uh, the horrible chaos would have resulted and it would have been worse than before. But he led them in an unexpected way. And we'll speak of that. And actually, a couple of the other main ideas in this section are also a little bit unexpected. We know that, for instance, God had appointed Moses to lead them, and we might have thought that he was going to lead them through the person of Moses, as he thus far had done. Yet there's this appearance of this miraculous and supernatural light, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, as God himself leads them very directly. That wasn't expected. And then there's that detail given in verse 19. And on their way out, they remembered to take the body of Joseph with them. Now, in some sense, it should have been expected, but we've probably forgotten about that if we've been reading in Genesis and if 
come now to Exodus 13, we've forgotten about that portion. But God didn't. And in the midst of all the preparations, in the midst of all of an extremely busy time, they did not neglect to bring out the body of Joseph with them. And that's an important detail by our promise-keeping God that we should not neglect. Well, the title of this sermon is that the Lord led them with these four points. In a pillar of cloud. Second, by the Red Sea. Third, in orderly ranks. And fourth, with Joseph's bones. So first, in a a pillar of cloud. And the Lord, this is verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. The most basic and central and most important issue of this is who is leading them. Because, again, we might have gotten the idea that their leader is Moses, and that's, that's in some sense true. He is the appointed agent. In fact, Aaron is doing the speaking for him. He's as the prophet. He says, I'm going to make him like your prophet and I'm going to make you like God. So, absolutely, he is in that sense their leader. But God is never, has never let them go entirely. He has not delegated in a way in which he never then returns to it. Rather, he has appointed a weak man and has, has shored him up and has given him strength to lead his people, but he's never abdicated. His uh, uh, abrogated the, a, the authority and responsibility that he himself has to lead them. And this is going now beyond the expectation of, of what we have of hitherto seen. We haven't had any promises particularly that there was going to be this wonderful supernatural uh, theophany of God leading them personally. We didn't really expect that. But here the Lord himself in the form of the angel of the Lord picks up the reins of the nation and personally leads them out. This, by the way, is an attribute of great leaders. Great leaders certainly know how and when to delegate tasks to others. They know how they can multiply the good work that happens when they delegate things to individuals. But they know the time and the moment to pick things up themselves and to lead them personally. And that is what God himself, who is the greatest leader, obviously, is doing at this crucial moment, not leaving it to chance, but leading them himself. Now the manner was, as I say, so God is the one who is leading them. That's the most important thing. And the manner is this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. That was in accordance with the need. A large group of people, and remember this is well over a million people, uh, a large group of people, they need direction. And in the day, something like a cloud is best. And, and let me say that we, even today in the military, with all the, the technology that is available, do you understand we still use pillars of cloud? Uh, they're, they're called smoke uh, grenades. And we, we have these little grenade launchers that shoot little, little uh, smoke grenades, and some of them are red and some of them are green and sometimes other sorts of things like that. And it, it gives signals. It's really useful. And do you know what we do by night? Pillars of fire. That's right. We, there are these uh, flares, different color flares, which can lead people. They may be lost. They're out there in the forest or in the desert. You have no idea even where one another is. But there's, the, there's the, the flare that's gone up, and we know where to rally. We know where to go and all the rest of it. Well, this is God. And he is giving them precisely the direction that they need. And to add to it, 
the light that they need to go as well. That uh, these people were going to be stumbling around and apparently the pillar of fire was so enormous and so capacious and so glorious that it provided light for this enormous company of people. And again, that's the secondary purpose of these flares that we shoot up in the the sky. It gives gives us light. Well, our God is the source of light. You know, sometimes people are in this horrible conundrum uh, as they go to the, the first chapter of Genesis and they say, you know, God is saying that he's creating in particular days and yet there was no, there was no sun until, until the third day. What is, what's up with that? How, how could there be a day before him? How could there be light? Well, the answer is, let there be light. The answer was God himself is the light. And that's why there's going to be no sun in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need for it. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the light. The sun is a pale reflection of the real thing. The Lord Jesus Christ is so glorious. His glory is so radiant. That is the true and real light and source of warmth and and light and energy and life. And that is what we we will be embraced with. That is what we will receive from in eternity. And here our good God gives light in order to lead his people out. Well, all this, of course, is in perfect accordance with God's nature. It's not just in accordance with the people's need. They needed direction. They needed a source of light. But it's also actually in accordance with God's nature. You know that back in chapter 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush, And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. This is, as we spent a time speaking on that one, this is not accidental. This is not sort of uh, just purely um, uh, having no connection with the way things really are, but this appearance is reality. Because Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. It is a picture of his holiness. God is many things. He has many, many attributes. Many things, true things could be said, both in terms of his titles and in terms of his attributes, his words and his works. All these things are true. But if there is one thing that can be said that is more central than all the rest of it, it is that he is holy. And so in the heavenly throne room in Isaiah, what are the thrice repeated word? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Many other things could be said, but that is the one the Lord himself has chosen to declare more than anything else that he is holy. And what does that holiness look like? Why, it's a burning fire. So brilliant, so pure, that even the seraphim themselves have to cover their eyes as they behold the living God in all of his splendor. He is indeed a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall dry them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Again, so we're going back and forth. First we say that his his appearance is in accordance with the people's need, and that is true. And then we say that his appearance is in accordance with his own nature as a holy God, and that is also true. But even in his nature, that is precisely what the people need. Not only do they need light and direction, they they need this source of strength that would consume their enemies from before them. How reassuring it must have been 
to them to begin that, that journey, having this enormous, exceedingly powerful, brilliant beyond all imagination, light leading them. There is no question whether it is the right way. Sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes we would see a flare here and we'd see a flare there and not exactly certain where we should go or what we should do. There was no question about this. There was just one source of light and it was leading them ever and perfectly and inerrantly exactly the way that they needed to go. What a glorious thing. And beyond the fact that he was leading, and beyond it, the fact that he was giving them light in order to walk as if it were day, no problem stumbling, they had all the light they needed. But in addition, this very source of light pointed to the fact, who's going to mess with this pillar of fire? Who's going to be able to stand against this God and the people that he was leading? No one. His, his nature as a consuming fire, is precisely the attribute that they most needed to know about and trust in as they moved forward in this great work. And he did not take away, verse 22, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. It was wonderful at the beginning of um, a whole torrent of these flares. They have little parachutes and they, they provide nice light. You feel so much more uh, comfort in the darkness when the, this source of light appears and then they go out you run out of flares but you know those people never ran out of a source of light God in his goodness did not leave them God in his goodness did not take away that light at any point but he was continually with them both day and night we've been focusing on the pillar of fire by night but that cloud of that cloud by day was equally uh, affirming, equally reassuring, maybe not so much visibly than the, the fire, but of a reminder of this presence of God that is continually with them at all times. What a glorious God that we serve who leads them in a pillar of cloud and of fire. Now, that's the, the appearance of the Lord. The, the one who is leading them is God himself. He's doing so in this pillar of cloud and of fire. But secondly, the way. Who, what is the way that they're going? Well, it's by the Red Sea. In verse 17, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the, Philist- the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Although that was near. There were basically two ways to the promised land, by far the most direct one. The straight line, more or less, was to just go by the way of Philistia. And then, yes, there was the long and roundabout way to go into the wilderness. And again, you or I would surely choose the direct way. But God chose the other way, the very roundabout way. Why? Did he have a reason? I think it's important. You know, he could have led them that way. He could have led them any way that they, he wanted to. And he didn't have to explain. He didn't owe them an explanation. And he, didn't, he does not owe us an explanation for why he's done thus. But he gives us one. He says, For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Led them in this roundabout way. Now, what this is saying is that they would, if they went this most direct way in the land of the, to the, the way of the Philistines, they would soon encounter the Philistines. 
And there would certainly be battles. They were not just going to let them pass through their land. There was going to be war when they encountered the Philistines. And they might not have been ready for that. He said, they've got the pillar of fire. There's a million or more of them there. But these people are weak. Have we heard that before? They're weak. And their God knows that they are weak. He has not forgotten these things. He is completely mindful of their condition as slaves in this land of Egypt. They have just been freed from their slavery. They're no soldiers. They're not battle-hardened veterans. They've been whipped into submission, and they're not quite ready. God could have been perfectly right within his rights to say, come on, let's go. Get it together. We're going to go to war right now. But he doesn't. He says, you know, they might not be ready for this, and I'm going to give them a little bit more time to prepare. And of all these things, and, and okay, so the, the most proximate issue, the next thing that they're going to they're come to is war, and they might not be ready for it. But the larger issue which the Lord is concerned about is if they then encounter this war before they're ready, what, what is he worried about? That they might change their mind. That they might change their mind and return back to Egypt. All along throughout Exodus, what has been the problem? Plague one. Pharaoh might change his mind. Plague two, plague three, plague four, plague five, all throughout. We're trying to get Pharaoh to let them go. First, change his mind that way. And then secondly, we're hoping that he doesn't change his mind and go back because that's the next thing that happened in a number of these plagues. That first, he agrees, and then he changes his mind. And that's the problem, that Pharaoh might change his mind. That's not the problem any longer. Now the problem is that the people might change their minds. That even though Pharaoh has let them go, and there's nothing more soon enough that he can do about that, the people might change their mind and go back to Egypt. Now, this is an unexpected and strange thing. But the Lord knows them very well, doesn't he? He knows they're weak, they're not ready for war, and he knows that they are so weak that even this might discourage them and send them back to the land of Egypt so he is not willing that they endure this kind of trial at the moment. This is a problem, by the way, that we know that will plague them. But as a preview, if you've not read the book of Exodus, be prepared that in the future this is going to come up more than once. The people are going to either talk about or threaten or otherwise be tempted to return back to the land of Egypt. And there is no, there is no reason for it. Uh, well, I'll say that now, and I'll say it every time that it recurs, it's a dumb idea. It's the people, the Egypt, Egypt and the, their king wanted to kill them, kept them in chattel slavery, withdrew from them every good thing, and yet they constantly have these, these, these wonderful imaginations of how good it used to be in Egypt. Friends, in passing, I want to say this. Your concept of what it's like in the world is not accurate, okay? You have to understand that for whatever reason, probably because Satan is in charge of PR for the world, and he does a very good job, that your conception of what it might be like out in the world is wrong, okay? Just like the people of Israel, they had a bizarre and incredibly distorted view of how wonderful it was in Egypt with all the leeks and onions, It was a place of slavery and of death. Friends, please, uh, don't be so quick to accept some sort of attractive view of the world. 
Well, what do we say about these things? We say that our God is, is good, isn't he? And he's very wise, and he's very kind, and he's very merciful. Matthew Henry says that God's way is the right way, though it seem to be the roundabout way. Say that again. God's way is the right way, though it might seem the roundabout way. If we think he leads not his people the nearest way, yet we can be sure that he leads them the best way. And so it will appear when we come to our journey's end. Judge nothing before the time. This is much in the line with what we said this morning. Uh, our trials come, and as Kevin Bidwell rightly says, we don't get to choose our trials. They come to us. And we, yet we must know, and we must be confident, that the way that he leads us is the right and the best way. And in particular, the reason which the Lord himself gives for leading them this way is that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And therefore he led them in the roundabout way. So God is leading them in a pillar of cloud by the Red Sea, which is a roundabout way. And thirdly, though, in orderly ranks. The manner in which he leads them is in orderly ranks. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. It's a very brief point. I'm not going to belabor it, but it's worth making. That if God is the one who is leading us, that was the first point. God is the one who is leading us. It will be orderly. Because God himself is a God of order and of perfection. Just again to continue the military analogy. If you ever encounter a, a, a unit that has perfect order and its, march, its uniforms are perfect and the, and the marching is perfect or the drill or exercise is being done with perfect precision and their barracks are perfectly orderly and clean, what do we know? It reflects on the leadership. They have good leadership. There's an orderly mind behind this whole thing. Well, friends, how much more so the church. How much more so the church? If God is leading his people, you can be certain it's in an orderly fashion. And so it must be in our worship, so it must be in our church government. First Corinthians fourteen forty saying, Let let all things be done decently and in order. All things, everything that the church does, let it be done decently and in order. Uh, why is it that our order of worship is orderly. Why aren't we like the, the Pentecostals and we have a chaotic... Uh, in fact, some churches actually go out of their way to appear chaotic. And it's not actually. Actually, it's all carefully orchestrated and planned. But the, the superficial appearance is to give you the idea that it's all spur of the moment and, and, uh, and, and more, um, more free and, and, and along those lines. Why? Well... I can't give you the answer. I guess that's the the line that the world is using because that's what's exciting and entertaining. I guess that's the reason. Or or maybe the idea, the false idea, maybe a little bit more charitable appreciation, is that God does incredibly unexpected things and therefore our worship service should echo that. Well, I've just said that God does lead us in unexpected ways. That's true. But he does so. The manner in which he leads us in these ways is orderly. And orderly ranks. And therefore, our worship echoes that order that God himself imparts to us. 
You know, the, the world is chaotic. The world is anarchic because they're not being led by an orderly God. They're being, ordered, they're being led by sinful man and ultimately by Satan. But for us, yes, we have a somewhat staid order of worship. We've had people come and visit us and say, this is too staid for my tastes, and I'm going to go to some place where it's, it's more lively. Well, friends, we want to be where God leads us, and we want to be his sheep that are led in a protected and orderly way, reflecting the beauty of our ordered God. And so that's the way we worship, and that's the way we have in Presbyterianism an orderly form of church government. And I, for one, am thankful for it. It was a brief point. He's leading them, the manner in which he's leading them is in orderly ranks. Our fourth and final point is with Joseph's bones. In verse 19, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. And that is what he said. Recall again from Genesis chapter 50. Almost the last thing that said in the book of, of Genesis. So a wonderful prefiguring is the death of Joseph is there. And then in verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and will bring you out of the land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It was a beautiful way to end the book of Genesis. God will surely visit you is the promise, the prophecy made, and God has visited them. And what Joseph did was an act of faith. He believed God's promises, and therefore he gave instruction concerning his body. That's what, what Hebrews says. That was his act of faith. God said he's going to visit them. He's going to dis visit your descendants. didn't look like that in the 400 and so years. It didn't came. It, didn't, it sometimes didn't look like God was going to get around to that. But Joseph knew it was going to happen. And we knew it was going to happen. Our promise-keeping God always keeps his promises. And it was right then that they not neglect to keep the oath that they had made, this covenanted oath. Now you say, uh, who is he making this oath with? His children, his immediate children, the, the, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. Those were his children. That's the one who made an oath. Why then does it still enforce all these years later? Why? They're all dead. Do you know why? Because of the covenanted nature of the way God deals with us. And when he is making an oath, when he is taking an oath from his descendants, he is expecting then that to go from father to son, from father to son, father to son, all the way until this point. Because that's a parallel of the way God deals with us. One generation to the next, parents to children, transmitting the Christian faith, transmitting the promises, and these things are, are going to be fulfilled in their time. What a beautiful picture of the way God deals with us. And it's even in particular having to deal with his body. He is entrusting his body to them. And it's a foretaste of the resurrection, actually. It says right now it's going to be this land of slavery. I know it's going to be bad. But don't worry, God is eventually going to visit. 
you. And in that moment, my body's going to be taken up out of there into the promised land, which is a hint, hint, picture of heaven. Okay? That is exactly, exactly a picture of our situation. Yes. We recently had a funeral at, at Durham. One of the senior saints of that church, one of the long-standing ones, Mrs. Medley. And we laid her body into the ground. But you know, we have every expectation of seeing her again. Because God has said he's going to visit us. And when that happens, she and the rest of us are going to the promised land. She's not going to be left behind. None of God's people are. Both in their soul, yes, even from the moment of death, we go to be with the Lord in our souls. But then in our resurrected bodies, every last one of us leaving this place of death and of slavery and going up into the promised land. Joseph made this oath, this promise concerning his body, and God himself also does with regard to all of us. So God led them. He did so in the form of this pillar. He led them in an unexpected way by the Red Sea, but in orderly ranks and not forgetting to take along with him Joseph's body. The applications, first of all, is my plea to you is to let the Lord lead you. Let the Lord lead you. The Lord is able to lead you. Now, I hope you understand that the Lord is more than able to lead you. He really is. Unbelievers sometimes act as if the creator of the universe is somehow unable to speak to us. They're constantly uh, speaking in, in disbelieving terms that the Lord could ever give us a perfect word that's free from any error. That how could he possibly do this? How could he leave us instructions? Friends, if he created the world out of nothing by the word of his power, he is able to give us a book. And he certainly has. A book of perfect instructions, better even than of words given from heaven that disappear to give us his permanent record of precisely his will for us. He is able to lead us. And I would say beyond that, it's not just a means of communication. He is the most able leader imaginable. Of course, we would want to be led by the Lord. No human leader is anywhere near as intelligent, as wise, as compassionate with as much foresight and providential care as the Lord, not even close. We want to, we should want to be. And let me say that he's not just able to lead us, he's the most able leader and able to communicate with us, but he's also willing to lead you. You understand that? That's what this, another way of restating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian gospel, is to say it's an invitation for the Lord to lead you. All right? You've been following Satan into the ways of death, And now the Lord comes with an offer, let me lead you into the ways of life. That's another way of saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It means forsaking your previous leader, Satan, and and following your your new leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's in in his end, is an offer for him that he might lead you. The Lord's able to lead you, the Lord is willing to lead you, and the only question is whether you are willing to be led by the Lord. Are you willing to forsake other leadership 
and to entrust yourself entirely into his hands, no longer his angel, but the risen Lord Jesus Christ, through his word and spirit, are you willing to be led by him out of this world and into the next? So let him. Surrender entirely, and in humility let the Lord lead you, and he will not lead you astray. I was speaking to some of the students. One of the greatest things, or one of the things greatly on the mind of our students and young people, of course, has to do with decisions, where they should next go, what they should do, whom they should marry. These things loom large, and rightly so. They're very important things. But the most important and primary thing is that your desire be that the Lord lead you. And if you, friends, if, you're, if your desire is that the Lord really lead you, he will not lead you astray. One of the most powerful assurances and testimonies I've ever heard in this has to do with this uh, theologian and seminary professor, Douglas Kelly. He told a group of ministers at Twin Lakes probably, who knows, nine years ago, he said, you know, the Lord has never let me make a mistake. I, at first I thought, what is he talking about? We all make many mistakes. We're just talking about that. But he was talking about these kind of issues, big decisions, major life-changing decisions as to where to study, what vocation to take up, you know, what job to have, whom to marry, and all the rest, where to live, all those kind of things. And his testimony was, in his 70s, was that he's never actually made a mistake along those lines. He came to the Lord wanting to be led. And he was never let down. He was never disappointed. In all these things, the Lord led him in the right way. And he, it was very clear to him that all these things were the right way. Now, a couple of times, for a little bit, it didn't seem to be the most direct path. And so I can say, I, let me add, I, I agree now. I will say the same thing that Douglas Kelly did. Thus far has the Lord led me, and, and I have not been led astray. He has not permitted me to make a mistake in these things. Now, a couple of times, a couple of times, I wondered at the particular path, because I might have picked a different path. But our God is very good. He knows our feeble frame. And he knows exactly what is needed. He knows maybe that if he led us a certain more direct way, that the very place that he wanted to go in the end, we would be leading ourselves away from. Let the Lord lead you. Secondly, know that it may be through unexpected ways, because I want to reiterate that. Our, my, the first application is let the Lord lead you, but let me say again in more force and more more specific ways, you have to understand that it might be in an unexpected direction. And that certainly includes trials. Because, friends, listen to this. Do you understand that this very notion of being led in the wilderness, they are walking, most of them. Some of them are in animals or carts, but most of them are walking. And in any case, it's not like you're going 100 miles an hour or 500 miles an hour on a donkey. It's still very slow. And the wilderness is vast. And they have these two things. They can go this way that will get them there very quickly, or they can go this long way. And it must have been a trial for them to be led in a direction they think is the wrong way. And yet, it was actually being done by a faithful God to keep them from a trial that they could not endure. 
his very act of kindness and the fatherly mercy upon them, knowing their feeble frame, they experienced in the moment as a trial. How about that? Know that the Lord's way may be in these unexpected ways. And that you may experience these things even as a trial. But, thirdly, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So let the Lord lead you. Know that it might be through unexpected ways. But understand, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. That is the quote again from 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with a temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape was taking the long way out of Egypt, knowing what was going to be an unendurable trial for them. He would not give them something beyond what they could bear because he knows us and he is good. He does not want us to stumble that we might fall. Yes, sometimes it is his will that we be, that we be sifted and that we be thrown up in the air. But he wants his children all to fall in the right place. He's not going to send a hurricane force wind upon weak people blowing us beyond the confines of what is good and right for us. And we have to believe that. Fourthly, I would just, perhaps as a minor point, but since it's come up, I might just say, and again, since there was a funeral on Friday, I I think I want to say it. You know, people today sometimes make very light of the physical disposition of our bodies. And they say, who cares about our, well, some people make too big of a deal about their funeral and make it into some big production, but some others make too light of these things. And who really cares about what happens to our body? But I don't think the word of God allows us to do that. I think we read these things and we say, actually, no, these things are important. And even the mode of our disposition, whether of cremation or burial, does make, it it is significant in some way. And let me say right away that cremation does not disqualify anyone from the general resurrection one way or another. If if anyone's relative is is cremated, that is, uh, God is able, if they're a Christian, to bring even those molecules back together in a glorious new body we have our existence in the mind of God ultimately anyways. Um, so I'm not saying that. But the question is, which is more consistent with our hope? Right? Which is more consistent also with the biblical example here given of this godly man, Joseph, cremated and his bones taken out with the people in the hope of the resurrection? Well, again, I would say that burial would be and cremation probably more consistent, more meet with those who expect uh, uh, either to be burned in, in eternity or else to be extinguished. Very many people in our times wish that they would be extinguished, wish that they could make themselves disappear at death because they know about God, they know about the law of God, and they know also that they're going to uh, be judged. Well, we don't always get to choose these things, whether for ourselves or for others. There are many constraints in a a world with not much space. But if we have a choice as a Christian people, then we should go with burial uh, rather than cremation for these reasons. Let me just say that beyond that, though, isn't it a thought, again, uh, of a uh, 
Uh, every time I go to Sheffield, I'm reminded that here in this graveyard lies the bodies of believers that are awaiting the general resurrection, waiting that last trumpet, and that we shall be with them. This is part of the congregation of, uh, of the new heavens and the new earth that we are about to meet. And isn't it a, a lovely thing and a meet thing that when that congregation in, in Sheffield meets, that the living, the church militant, is, is there also in the physical location of those that have gone before. And uh, it is a picture then of God's good promises. That our bodies still being united to Christ, laid in the ground, but in the expectation then of the resurrection to be reunited with our souls. Well, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you lead us. Lord, it's hard even to find words to express exactly the depth of our thankfulness and exactly what we mean, but Heavenly Father, we desperately need to be led. We are sheep. You have created us to be sheep, and we need someone to lead us. And we are thankful that you are more than able and you are willing indeed to lead us. And Lord, how I pray that each and every one here would submit completely, fully to your leadership. And that we would gladly be led by your hand, most directly or by, by any path, out of the city of destruction and into the promised land of eternity. We are thankful, Lord, that you do so in an orderly way, and particularly on the eve of the quarterly meeting of Presbytery, we do pray, Lord, your blessings upon the orderly governance of your church in this world. And we're thankful, Lord, that no detail is too small for you, and yes, Lord, that you have care even for the disposition of our bodies, as one day, Lord, we, our bodies and souls shall be reunited in glory, and all those who have gone before us, and all those who go after, if the Lord tarry, we look forward to such things. Knowing, Lord, the perfection of your leadership, that you will not make a mistake. You will not lead us astray. You, you, but rather, Lord, each and every one of your promises will be fulfilled in their entirety. And so, Lord, we pray that we would walk, we would step from this time in great confidence that you will lead us. And in great confidence that you are able to meet all the demands that come with it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.